welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of John, the 16th chapter? John, the 16th chapter. And if you would stand with me, I'm going to read just verses 5 through 7, but I had planned to teach through the 15th verse, but we'll see how far I get, okay? I think I'll get stuck at verse 7, though. All right, but I'm only going to read 5 through 7 this morning for our reading as we begin. Now, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Father, once again, we do pray that your Holy Spirit will take complete control of our time. God, we pray that you have already tilled the soils of our hearts to receive your word and that, God, uh, we would apply all that you teach us, all that you reveal, all that you illuminate uh, in our lives, God, and for your glory. So have your way in Jesus' name. And the body say amen. Amen. You may take your seats. So as Eric said, 40 days after Jesus rose from the dead, and ascended, he ascended back to glory, and I believe Thursday, May 30th of this year, was the 40th day, if I'm not mistaken, and, and so the church designates the following Sunday, which is this Sunday, as Ascension Sunday, and as he also stated, it's very significant because it marks the first time that humanity That's what I love about this. It marks the first time that humanity entered into the spiritual realm and the glorious dimensions of heaven. Jesus, the God-man, with his new resurrected and glorified human body ascended from earth into heaven, and he now sits as a human representative for us. That is amazing. Just wrap your mind. I I can't wrap my mind around that one. His ascension was critical, though. It It was the crucial and the final required component that gave purpose to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the world today. Let me say that again. His ascension was the crucial and the final required component that gave purpose to the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church and the world today. See, now that Jesus has ascended, the Holy Spirit is the person of the Trinity who is most prominent in the world today, amen? The purpose of his presence is to manifest the person and the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has what J.I. Packard calls a floodlight ministry. I want to read an extensive quote from J.I. Packard's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. To me, it's one of the best books I've ever read on the Holy Spirit. This is what he says. The Holy Spirit's distinctive new covenant role 
is to fulfill what we may call a flood-like ministry in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, when, when floodlight or when flood lighting is done well, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. You are not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make it visible when otherwise it would not be seen for the darkness. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlights shining on the Savior. I like that because he goes on to say this. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulders onto Jesus who stands facing us. The Spirit's message to us is never look at me. It's never listen to me or come to me or get to know me, but always look to him and see his glory. Listen to him and hear his word. Go to him and have life. Go to, go to him and taste his goodness, his grace, his mercy, his peace, and his joy. See, this doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit doesn't make himself known to us. He does. In fact, the scriptures are full of how he reveals himself to us. But ultimately, what he reveals about himself is his role in helping us to come to know and to make known the person and the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. And so I want to share with you the ministry of the paraclete. I didn't say parakeet. I always get mixed up. I shouldn't even said that because now I'm going to start saying parakeet. But I want to share with you the ministry of the paraclete and how he helps to communicate a specific message that fulfills a specific mission employing a specific method. The first point, the Spirit's message. Again, look at John 16, 5. What is the specific message that the Holy Spirit helps to proclaim? As I'm sure you already know, the message that the Holy Spirit helps to proclaim is the good news of the gospel. Let's walk through this text. He says in verse 5, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But they did. If you read the scriptures, they did, in fact, ask Christ, where was he going? In John 3:36, Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me, but you will follow me later. And in John 14, 5 and 6, Thomas asked the same question. Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So the disciples had asked this question before. Jesus didn't just forget that they had asked him the questions in the previous chapters. In fact, he told them several times where he was going. In John 7:33, Jesus it says this, therefore Jesus said, for a little while I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. And in John 14:12, 
truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. Why? Because I go to the Father. And in John 14, 28, you heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I am. He told them repeatedly where he was going, but they didn't understand it because they couldn't fathom the idea that the Savior who had come to rescue and redeem them had to first die. And so he's pointing out to them the reason for their sorrow in verse 5. He says, but because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That's verse 6. He's saying this, I just told you I'm going away. I just told you I'm going away to him who sent me, but none of you are really concerned about me or where I'm going. Then he says, but, which is a contrast word, but, or instead, or rather, you are concerned because I have said these things to you. What things did he say? To paraphrase verses 1 through 5, he said, you are concerned because I told you that I am now leaving you and because I told you that you're going to be kicked out of the synagogue and you're going to be considered an outcast by your family and society and you'll be killed because of me. So, because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Well, yeah. After everything Jesus just told them, I don't know about you, but I could understand why sorrow had filled their hearts. I'll admit, I'm often guilty of the same thing. When something uncomfortable or difficult happens in my life, I first tend to focus my attention on either why God allowed it to happen or what I can do to fix it as quickly as possible. And often when my focus is on the wrong thing, it only results in greater and longer suffering. Listen, difficulties often can cause us to focus on the wrong things. And what happens is we become so self-absorbed and too distracted to recognize what the Holy Spirit wants to do or to say to us through the difficulty. But I don't think that Jesus here is chastising them. I think he's encouraging them by the use of contrast. Look at what he says in verse 7. And let me warn you, this is where I plan to spend the bulk of our time. He says in verse 7, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He's saying, you got to change how you see this thing, guys. Let, yes, I'm leaving you, and you will suffer the consequences because of your faith in me, but my leaving you is not a cause for sorrow. It's a reason to rejoice. It's to your advantage. Does your Bible say that? Listen, no matter what's happening in your life today, no matter how unfair, unprovoked, or uncomfortable it may be, I want you to know that if the Holy Spirit has allowed it to come into your life, and, 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 and listen, he will use it either to expose your sin or transform your character or strengthen your spirit or to reveal his person and his presence and his power in your life. 
Whatever it is, he will use it for his glory. So listen, to understand this is to eliminate worry and anxiety and anxiety so that we are free to focus on Jesus. I love that. The disciples felt that they were about to lose the greatest thing that had ever happened to them. They were about to lose being physically and intimately in the presence of Jesus. And now, and and, and not just that they were also uh, about to lose him, there was also, he said, the possibility of losing their families, being a social cast out, and even losing their very lives. So sorrow had filled their hearts. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Jesus wants them to know that though he's leaving them, he has something for them that is better than what they already have. Are you kidding me? He wants them to know that they are about to experience something that is much more profitable. They they will receive something that is a far greater benefit. It is something of infinite value and significant worth. So Jesus says, It is to your advantage that I go away. I go away. He must go away. And again, as he stated in verse 5, he must go to him who sent him. He must go to the Father. Jesus is going back to be uh, glorified together with the Father, with the glory that he had with the Father before the world was, or before the Father uh, sent him. He says, I go away. Stay with me, because I want to take you somewhere. I go away. I have to go, because I have to die for you. Uh, I have to go away. I have to go. Uh, I have to die for you. Then I have to rise from the dead for you. And then I have to ascend into heaven uh, for you. So I have to go away. This is what Jesus was teaching in Mark 8:31 that says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days and rise again. He taught them that he would have to go away and that going away involved him being killed and then after three days he would rise again. I go away. Are you with me? I'm trying to establish the fact that in these words is a message. Uh-huh. It, is, it, is, it is the gospel, and it is the message that Jesus proclaimed from the very start of his ministry. In Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I love the gospel. <laughs> Listen, this is the message of the gospel right here. Jesus preached it from day one, but it wasn't fulfilled. It wasn't complete until he died, rose from the dead, and ascended to the Father. So in order to establish the gospel, in order to complete and fulfill the message, it was necessary for Jesus to go away. You with me? But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage 
that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The reason the Holy Spirit's arrival is contingent upon Jesus' departure is because his departure is what inaugurated the gospel. Listen, so until he goes away, until he is nailed to the cross, until he dies, the Holy Spirit has no message to help proclaim and therefore no reason to come. Whoa, you're preaching heresy. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there's nothing the Holy Spirit could do to save God's elect. Without the ascension, there is no gospel. And without the gospel, there's no power to raise the dead, no power to cleanse us from sin, no power to bring sinful man out of darkness into the light of God. And so the helper will not come to you. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. I love that word, the helper. I, 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 I love it because it's rich with so much meaning. The word is paraclete. And there is no adequate English translation because this one word carries a wealth of meaning. Paraclete means helper counselor and comforter. It means strengthener, supporter, and senior friend. It means assistance, an advocate, an ally, an intercessor. One theologian said that because this word means so much, it's better not to translate it, to just leave the word paraclete. I agree. This theologian, wannabe theologian, agrees. The Holy Spirit is the helper. He is the paraclete. So no matter what word you settle on, no, what's common to all of these words is that they describe a person who comes alongside of another to give aid and assistance. It describes a person who brings together all of their resources to help another do what needs to be done. Oh, that's good news. It is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper will not come. The advantage of Jesus leaving is the arriving and the indwelling or the infilling of the paraclete in the disciples. This is far more advantageous, which means we have it better today. Ooh, are you kidding me? Listen, I know, be, 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 before I even I understood this, I know I often wish that I had lived and walked physically with Jesus. I remember thinking that all the time. But the advantage now is how the paraclete brings us together with Jesus. It's how he baptizes us into his body. It's how he makes us one with the Trinity and with one another. The advantage is how he permanently seals us in him, giving us full access to all of God's goodness and all of God's grace and all of God's power. Amen. The disciples will lose his temporary physical presence with them. But the advantage is that they will gain the permanent indwelling of his spirit. 
Did you catch that? Listen, it's not just the presence of the paraclete that's more advantageous. For he has been here from the very beginning, amen? But it is his permanent indwelling, his permanent dwelling presence within the being of every believer. Wow. So that now we are never alone. (laughs) We are never without him. We are never not in the presence of God. Jesus said in John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, another paraclete, that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. Jesus is sending another paraclete. Jesus is the OG paraclete. (laughs) But in his physical absence, he sends another paraclete, a, a second paraclete, one just like himself to help continue the proclamation of his ministry or of his message. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. He is just like Jesus. He has the same divinity, He has the same divine unity within the Trinity. He has the same divine authority. He has the same divine essence, the same divine nature, the same divine uh, 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 power to proclaim the same message and fulfill the same mission by employing the same method. He's another paraclete. Both Paul and Peter called him the Spirit of Christ. I hope I didn't say too much to lose you. Here's what I've been trying to say or what I've been trying to show you. That by his leaving, the advantage that Jesus has given to the disciples and to us is the permanent indwelling of the paraclete who helps us by uniting us together with Christ and who works his power through us to continue proclaiming the gospel as if Jesus never left. Man, again, that's chandelier swinging stuff, I know. I know. Absolutely, yes. Here's the second point. The Spirit's mission. John 8, 16, 8. Look at verse 8. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. His mission. This is the specific mission of the Spirit. It is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What does that mean? How, how, how does he accomplish this? He does it by shining the floodlight on Jesus. Y'all thought I had a different kind of message. See, I'm not deep at all. Every time I, if I could just come up here and just say Jesus, that's, the, that's all my sermons. I mean, it's just, it's just to glorify and magnify and lift up Jesus because that's what he does. Listen, Jesus is the standard He is the only man who never fell short of the glory of God. He never missed the mark. He lived a perfectly obedient and sinless life. He absolutely, completely, exhaustively obeyed the will, the word, and the work that the Father sent him to accomplish. He fulfilled his mission. I can quote a ton of scripture, but for the sake of time, let me give you just one. John 17, 4, you know it. I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. And so the paraclete, 
convicts the world of sin by glorifying and illuminating by, the, by, by, by flooding with light the perfect obedience of Jesus. And it is through this or his revelation of the obedience of Jesus that the world is convicted of sin. You see that in your Bible? Prior to Jesus, listen, there was no real conviction because no man could ever live up to the standard of righteousness outlined by the law of God. All had sin. All had fallen short of the glory of God. There was none, not one who lived right before God. But Jesus did. And now the Holy Spirit says, look, look at him. This is what it means to be holy. And when we look at him, the paraclete opens up our eyes. He gives us understanding. And it is this revelation of Jesus's obedience that convicts the world of sin. If the paraclete compared my life to your life, you would not be convicted of any sin. In fact, you would feel justified. <laughs> uh -huh, I see some heads like, yep. <laughs> you would feel justified in your own sin and feel no need to repent. But he uses the revelation of the obedient nature of Jesus to expose our sinful nature. And then he graciously calls us to repent concerning sin. Verse 9, 16, 9, concerning sin because they do not believe. In me. Here is the root of all sin. Unbelief. Specifically, not failing, not just failing to believe, but to reject, to reject what Jesus did on the cross by sacrificing his righteous life to pay the wages of sin and bring reconciliation to the Father. To reject this is to leave a person with absolutely no hope and no means to escape the judgment of God. Did you hear that? A little hell and fire and brimstone right there. So that's old stuff. So mission, the mission of the paraclete is to convict the world of sin by glorifying Jesus Christ. Jesus is the standard of righteousness. And anyone who does not meet his standard must repent. Wow. And concerning righteousness, he says in verse 10, because I go to the father and you no longer see me. The mission of the paraclete is to convict the world of righteousness or to teach the world what righteousness is. And again, how does he do this? He does this by doing the same thing, shining the floodlight on Jesus Christ. And concerning righteousness, John 16, 10, because I go to the Father and you no longer, you'll no longer see me. Listen, the standard of righteousness is Jesus. And so listen, the evidence or the proof that he is the standard of righteousness is the fact that, 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 that death couldn't hold him down. But, but that he rose and ascended and was received by the Father and he now sits at the right hand of God. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. The evidence or the proof that he is the standard of righteousness, the evidence of that is the fact that, the, that, that death couldn't hold him, that he rose from the dead, he ascended and was received by the Father, and he now sits at his right hand. Here's why this is so important. Because the world is convinced that the nature of man is good. I know how you've heard it. Listen, 
People think that as long as they do good deeds and think good thoughts and do no harm to anyone and try to live at peace with their fellow man, people think that makes them a good person and deserving of heaven. But the Bible says that the righteousness of man is as good as a used menstrual pad when compared to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. What a picture. He's the only man who lived righteously. So he is the standard the paraclete uses in his mission to convict the world of righteousness. Does that make sense? And again, it is this revelation of our unrighteousness that convicts us and brings us to repentance. Verse 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. The mission of the paraclete is to convict the world of judgment. How does he do this? You guessed it. <laughs> By shining the floodlight on Jesus Christ, specifically Jesus on the cross. Through his revelation of the cross, we see the judgment of God against sin. Verse, uh, 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 1 Peter 4, 17 and 18 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if, it, if, and if with difficulty the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Listen, on the cross, Jesus took full responsibility for our sin as if he committed each one himself. And by doing so, he suffered the judgment of God. So how does the paraclete use this to convict the world of judgment? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Listen, listen, the fact that this man, we said it before, Eric said it, I said it earlier, the fact that this man, this God man, has ascended into the glorious dimension of heaven and now sits in his full divinity and in his full humanity right next to God the Father reigning and ruling as the Lord of Lords and the kings of kings is the evidence presented by the paraclete that convicts the world that Jesus is innocent and the world is guilty. Listen, the world judged Jesus as guilty by putting him to death. But by his death, resurrection, and ascension, the paraclete uses that to convict the world of its wrong judgment. Does that make sense? And concerning judgment, verse 6, 16, 11, because the ruler of this world has been judged. So listen, the father poured out his judgment upon Jesus, sentencing him to death. But Jesus took all of God's judgment on the cross where he defeated sin and death and the enemy and Satan, the ruler of this world, was judged and was rendered powerless by the death of Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Hebrews says. Therefore, since the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. And so Jesus suffered the judgment of God so that all who believe in him would be saved from this same judgment. But all who rejects what he did on the cross, along with Satan, remains under judgment. And so the message of the paraclete is the gospel. And the mission of the paraclete is to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Here's my last point. I'm ending. The Spirit's method. 
Look at verses, uh, what is that? Where did, I, where did I stop? 12? I have many more things to say to you. Oh, so do I, but I don't have the time. <laughs> but you cannot, your bottoms cannot bear, you know, <laughs> you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Holy Spirit, but when the Spirit of truth I'm sorry, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you. Oh, I wanted to talk about how he guides us into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose it to you. What is, uh, what is to come? He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. I will guide you. I will, he will disclose it to you. Uh, he will take what is mine and disclose it to you. Uh, 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 and he said again in the last uh, sentence there, he will disclose it to you. You, 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 you. The method that the paraclete uses to employ uh, 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 to, uh, uh, to, to uh, uh, proclaim, I'm sorry, the gospel and fulfill the mission is you. Believers, disciples, the church. I don't have time to build on this last point, so I'm just going to hit this main idea. First of all, no one gets saved, though no one just gets saved without someone else communicating the way, uh, 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 the message of the gospel. Amen. I mean, I've heard some people say, oh, yeah, I was just walking down the middle of the alley, and boop, you know, I'm sorry. The paraclete isn't just some kind of abstract power that we can turn on and off at any whim. He doesn't just take over a person all of a sudden, and poof, they're saved. I know, I I'm, I'm, hope I didn't step on anybody's toes there, but, I mean, I, I do have, we have to have a conversation if that was your testimony. <laughs> See, the primary method, and I'll say primary, the primary method for bringing new life is to, is, is to proclaim the message of the gospel through believers, through the church. The power of salvation is in the gospel, and the paraclete uses believers to communicate this message. He then exerts his power through their words as they proclaim the gospel to bring new life. I don't have the power to raise the dead. I don't have the power to snatch someone out of darkness and into the light of God. Listen, I, don't, I was just telling my brother here, I'm always nervous and anxious and afraid whenever I have to stand up here and preach. My wife will tell you, I go through the, I'm, she's probably sick of me anytime I have to preach. I'm almost a woe is me kind of person. I mean, I'm, I feel inadequate. I feel weak. I, 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 listen, I, I feel the exact same way when, when I subjectively, for you theologians there, I subjectively, subjectively sense that the Holy Spirit is prompting me to share my faith with someone. I'm always concerned about what I'm going to say. I'm always concerned about how I'm going to say it and whether I'll stumble over my words or forget what I wanted to say or say something stupid like I always do. Don't laugh. But here's what I find every time I faithfully and obediently preach or share the gospel, that the power is not in how well I speak or how articulate my words, or how fluent my speech. The power belongs solely to the Holy Spirit and in the message of the gospel. I'm just the method he employs to proclaim the message to fulfill 
the mission. That's what we are as the church. Listen, we all feel weak and inadequate and unworthy to handle the word of God. As well we all should, amen? Because we are. The power is not ours. The power belongs to the paraclete in you. So all we need to do, the boldness we need to have is not in our own ability, but in his. So all we need to do is to trust him and do what Jesus sent him to do, uh, to trust him to do what Jesus sent him to do, and that is to help us. Wow. Listen to what Paul says about the method of the paraclete in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 4. And when I come to you, brethren, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I was determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Man, I'm in good company. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's our boldness. That's how we can go out to the parks and to our neighborhoods and on our jobs and in our schools and boldly tell others about Jesus Christ. And I don't know about you, but I remember long ago feeling like, man, Jesus Christ came, died, and rose again. Man, that's such a simple message. Are you kidding me? They're just going to laugh. They're, they're not going to accept that. But Jesus or God meant for that message to be simple. It's not hard to understand, and it's not hard to share it with someone else because the power is not in your words. The power is in the gospel. The power is in the spirit of God. In 1 Thessalonians 1.5, it says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. All the power is his. We must learn to trust in the Holy Spirit and in the power of the gospel. And when we do, through this method, Jesus said, we would do greater works. How is that? Because he walked the earth as one man. But now that he has ascended and sent the Spirit to dwell in man, there are millions to carry on his mission. Oh, I love that. This is how I see the method. Have you ever seen the movie The Matrix Reloaded? I know. I think this is the one where Mr. Smith can replicate himself. And instead of one, there are hundreds of Mr. Smiths fighting in the Matrix. Listen, this is the method of the paraclete. Listen, when we respond to the gospel, he fills us with himself and he replicates his character in us. And now instead of one Christ, as divine and as, as powerful as he is, there are now millions of Christians all over the world who are filled with his spirit, proclaiming the message of the gospel and fulfilling the mission of Christ. And so it is you and me. It is us. The church, we are the method that the paraclete uses. That's why the most effective way to fulfill the mission of reaching the world with Christ is to go on missions, as we saw, and to plant gospel-preaching churches. I'm ending. Listen, again, we're not powerful. 
Not in the sense that we have any intrinsic power that originates from ourselves. My speech and preaching are not powerful. My intellect is not powerful. Apart from him, I can do nothing. I'm not powerful. But because Jesus has returned to the Father, because he died, rose, and ascended, and has sent the paraclete to dwell in us, this is the advantage that he dwells in us and he exerts his power through us. So we're not powerful. We're power-filled I know I like that. (laughs) Thank you. That's the the best thing I said all day. (laughs) The power is his. The power to raise the dead is his. The power in the message, uh, uh, it's the gospel. It's the power of God that brings new life. Pentecost transformed a few fearful, empty, and powerless people into power-filled disciples. And I would encourage you to read Acts 2 because you will see how after they were filled with the paraclete, how Peter preached a simple gospel message. He preached the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, and then thousands were being saved, just like Mr. Smith. The ministry of the paraclete, his message is the gospel. His mission is redemption. And his method is the church. Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you, Master, that it's not about us, our wit, our intellect, our wisdom, our ability to communicate. It's all about you. God, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels. God, my prayer for your people is that they would take this word, your word, your gospel, and recognize, God, that with the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the paraclete, that they can boldly go wherever you bid us to go and share this gospel message and watch the world be turned upside down for Christ. God, you call us to do that in our very own city. So God, my prayer is that we would be bold in our faith, bold in our witness, bold in our missions, bold in planning church, bold, God, to do what you've called us to do. Father, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, this is our time to allow the paraclete, if you will, to spiritually nurture us. Communion is a means of grace. It's one of the ways that the Holy Spirit uses to nourish us. And so just so that you know, the bread is uh, gluten-free. The juice, as I like to say, is non-fermented. And so it's safe for you to take. And so we want to encourage you to partake of communion any point during these last uh, few worship songs. Amen? Amen. God bless. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.